Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Stay tuned to Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy is going to show us the major divisions and outlines of the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn with me please to the book of Romans. And those of you that are visiting with us this evening, we are doing a series of studies in the book of Romans. Now, I'm just reading Romans chapter 1 from verse number 1, and um, we'll deal with the subject tonight from this chapter. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end that ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oft times I purpose to come unto you, but was let hitherto, I was hindered from doing so, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you once again for the privilege of being able to sit and assemble ourselves before your word. Lord, it's a privilege. Not everyone has this freedom and this liberty. Uh, as we sit here this evening, uh, there are believers meeting in secret. There are believers running for their lives. There are believers that meet in home churches. Uh, there are believers that find it dangerous even to be known that they're Christians. 
Uh, all across this planet Earth, with the exception of places in the West, the Christian faith is under attack. And we have the privilege to just sit under your word with such freedom and such liberty that sometimes we get so accustomed to it, we take it for granted. Help us never to take this privilege for granted. Help us to treasure it. And Lord, remind us that when we meet in your house, we meet for one single solitary purpose. It's not to feel good. It's not to get excitement and to lose our sanity and to get into some heights that people speak about. It's to have our minds informed with your truth, to become intelligent believers, to be able to answer and give reasons for the hope that's in us, Lord, to fortify and fructify our faith, to become strong, to be established, to know what your word teaches. Because in our confrontation with others, we need to be able to help them. And we can only help them if we know your truth. So help me this evening as we go through the book of Romans. And we continue in our study of this particular book. I pray that you might help me to uh, be able to give the believers a grasp of what the content of this book is. And they can see how the Apostle Paul systematically works it out. And what is the relevance and the application to us living in this 21st century world? This is not just an ancient book for Jewish people living in the ancient world. This is eternal truth, relevant truth. And I pray, Lord, that we may see the relevancy of it as we work ourselves through this book. So I ask for your blessing. I ask for your help. I ask for your assistance and your guidance. And I pray, Lord, that it may be a profitable exercise as we meet here around your word. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In my first two messages on the book of Romans, I really dealt with four main things, and I'd just like to remind you what we've covered in the first two messages. The first thing I did when I began to deal with the book of Romans is to begin to show you the historical part that this book played in the life of the church and in the life of so many great men in the church. I talked about how it brought about a tremendous change in Martin Luther, a man that brought about the great Protestant Reformation. We talked about how the Augustine himself once heard that word, pick up and read. And the moment he picked up and read, his eyes fell upon that part in Romans which said, make no provision for the flesh. And of course, that brought him to faith in Christ. We talk about John Wesley. Having across America, preaching in America, still not saved. Imagine that. Great man of God, preaching in America, but not saved. It was not until he was in a boat, in a ship, traveling across to America and encountered a storm. And the storm is so fearful that John Wesley fears for his life. He's panicking. And while he's panicking, there are some Arabians that are just calmly singing songs as though nothing happening. And John Wesley can't understand that. Where such faith? What is your confidence? And then he learned through them this whole doctrine of justification by faith. It was the, the change, the, the moment of change to be brought about in uh, John Wesley. And then, of course, John Bunyan. We pointed out in him. And then, just in case you think we're dealing with ancient history, we mentioned that in the 19th century, the two brothers, the Haldane brothers, Robert and James, brought about a great revival in Europe. Uh, again, as a result of meeting some students 
who had no clue about the book of Romans, but he overheard the conversation. It became very clear that these are men in seminary, but ignorant of biblical truth. So he called them into his study and he began to do a systematic study of the book of Romans. And it is out of that that brought about a great revival in the 19th century. The book of Romans has played a pivotal role in church history. And I think it's important for us to understand that role in church history. The second thing that we, we did is that we began to see, uh, look at the, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this epistle. It's important that we understand the, the man that wrote this epistle. We found out that the man started off not as a Christian. He was a man that hated the Christian faith with a passion. As a matter of fact, he was what you might call a terrorist. See? His plan was to extirpate the church, destroy the church, root it out. And uh, the Bible uses the word, he breathed out threatenings. You ever read that thing? You know what it means? He was like a war horse. See? But his nostrils breathed. In other words, the Apostle Paul was so bent on destroying the church, he was almost becoming completely insane about it. But then he had an encounter with Christ, a life-transforming encounter on the Damascus Road. And this man that persecuted the church now decided he would preach Christ. And as a result, we have the book of Romans. And then we talked about the fact that how suitable he was for the ministry and for the one to write this particular book way in which God used him, his training at the feet of Gamaliel. He later knew that all the theology he had learned and all the Old Testament law he had learned, how that would become so useful in writing the Bible and how he, he's the one that could take these allusions in the Bible. You find him, Paul's right. You wonder, where man got such learning? It's because he sat at the great Gamaliel's feet. But you see, God would take that same information, transform his mind and put all these things he had learned into purpose within the book of Romans and in other parts as he was in the van. And then, of course, his exceptional ability. Very logical, brilliant mind. You cannot read the book of Romans without seeing his brilliance coming out uh, in this particular book. And, of course, we must never forget the, the value of his Roman citizenship. See? Uh, this enabled the Apostle Paul to become the man. God made him what? The Apostle to who? The Gentiles. But having that ticket called Roman citizenship, it broke down all barriers and the Apostle Paul was able to use the Roman system to travel and to, to, to become an itinerant evangelist and a missionary pioneer, uh, pushing back the horizons and going on and reaching men and women for Christ. Without that Roman citizenship, he could not do that. So God was preparing this man for his ministry. Well, the Apostle Paul was yet an enemy of Christ. As a matter of fact, in one of the epistles he said that God chose him from the time before he was even born. Now you comprehend that. You explain that to me. See, That before he was born, Paul said, I was separated unto the gospel. See, There's a biblical doctrine called election. A very difficult doctrine to comprehend. But I would say to you that God is actively involved in choosing people for his service and for his ministry that is his sovereignty and that's his priority. So we see his, his, his birth, his training, the exceptional ability that he had, the, the fact that he was a Roman citizen, a brilliant mind. All of these factors suited uh, God to use the Apostle Paul in the way that he did. And then the third thing that we, we looked at was the origin of the church. Where did this church of Rome come from? We discovered in the last sermon that it, this is not Pope Peter that founded this church. And the Roman Catholic Church is so filled with tradition and error that her boast is that the Apostle Paul founded the church at Rome. And yet, 
When you go through scripture and you read the book of Romans, it's clearly evident that could not be so. Can you imagine that Paul would mention over 30 something names in the final chapter and never mention Pope Peter? I mean, could he be the pastor of the church and he not mention him? But that's, uh, we don't want to get into that. And the Apostle Paul said, of course, he would not build on any man's foundations. He was never a person that wanted to invade another man's territory. And Paul stayed out of that. So we lo- and then we look at the membership of the church. It was a melting pot. In that church, you had Jew and Gentile. But in that church, you had master and slave as well. All the social barriers came down because they became one in Christ. And it was inevitable, by the way. That when a master and a servant rubbed shoulders in the church, it was inevitable that eventually this would have brought to an end this whole matter of slavery. I, I don't want to get into that. I preach another. I preach a message on that already, uh, dealing with the whole matter of the, the Christian faith and, and slavery and how do you explain it. But all I would say to you is that eventually it was the Christian influence that brought this monstrous uh, evil to an end. And men like Wilberforce and Granville Sharp uh, and others of his, his ilk were men that devoted themselves to this whole matter of doing away with slavery. So we have a, a great tradition in terms of the Christian faith. And don't let anybody pillory the Christian faith and push you back to apologize for it. There's nothing to apologize for. As a matter of fact, modern society is living on some of the residual benefits of the Christian faith. They want to destroy the, the, the Christian faith, but all the good things that they have, whether it be hospitals or, or schools, social works that they have, all of that in its origin, go trace it. It can be traced to some active Christian involved in some ministry. We have nothing to apologize about. We have a great heritage. It's just that you people don't read books, right? So you don't know your heritage in the process, but you ought to read them. And then the fourth thing that we looked at in the uh, no matter that we look at the purpose of the epistle. Why did Paul write this epistle? Now we know the, the great emphasis that Paul preaches uh, in, in, right to this epistle about justification by faith is about salvation. But why did Paul write this epistle? And the Apostle Paul leaves us in no doubt. He tells us in verse number 11 of chapter 1 that he wrote to them because he wanted to establish them. See? Establish them. And uh, the reason why he wanted to establish them is discovered when we look at ch- chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. Because in that particular passage, he said there were false teachers in the church causing divisions, teaching doctrine contrary to what they were taught. And they were using the eloquence and the rhetoric Good words and fair speeches, Paul says. But they were motivated by one, that was, they were mercenary. They were concerned about their belly. Strange language to use, right? But the Apostle Paul never mints words, see? And he made it very clear that the reason why he was writing, because he wanted to establish believers, because they've got this false teachers and error within the church. And it can actually undermine the faith of some. Now, having done that, Tonight, I want to deal with the third sermon in terms of introduction. I I want to talk to you tonight about the contents of the book of Romans. In other words, I want to ask the question tonight and answer it. What is the teaching of this epistle? What is the book of Romans all about? And in the process, I want to give you an analysis of this book so that in your mind, you can follow the Apostle Paul's thoughts. You know, it's one thing to say you know the book of Romans. It's another thing to follow the process of Paul's logic. And once you get a, a grasp of Paul's logic by in the book of Romans, it is one of the clearest understandings of salvation. And if you can get yourself grounded in, in what Paul teaches in respect to this subject, believe you me, 
most of your fears and your uncertainties will disappear once you get a grasp of what Paul teaches in the book of Romans. Now, I, I am doing this tonight, this analysis quite deliberately, because I believe it's essential that you grasp the overall view of a book before you attempt to deal with the various minute parts of the argument that Paul has. You've got to understand the whole, and after you understand the whole, you can come to the individual part. But if you begin to deal with the individual part, you will always be misled because you don't understand the general whole, the general theme that Paul is giving in this particular chapter. By the way, this is why most people have difficulty with chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Most people have problems with those chapters. And uh, especially chapter 6, 7, and 8, people misinterpret those three chapters. And I would hazard a guess to say that most Baptists misinterpret those three chapters. And we'll talk about that very shortly. But I want to suggest to you that the problem why people misinterpret those chapters is because they have not grasped the strategic, overall, holistic view of the book. If they can just take that strategic, holistic view of the book, those chapters that confuse so many people would become with greater clarity in the process. So I, I want uh, us to look at the epistle. I want to give you a bird's eye view of the epistle. And I want you to see the mighty genius of the Apostle Paul in his arguments in connection with this whole doctrine of salvation. And I believe that uh, it will help you in the process to understand this epistle as we deal with the details in some other, uh, other sermons. Number one. First, uh, let me give you the two main divisions of this epistle. The two main divisions of this epistle are from chapter 1 to chapter 11. That's the first division. And you will find that in chapter 1 to chapter 11, the Apostle Paul's main focus is on doctrine. Everything in that section is about doctrine. And then when you come to the second section, chapter 12 to chapter 16, you find that that last section of the epistle, the Apostle Paul deals with practice. So what Paul does is that having given this doctrine in the first 11 chapters, from the next chapters 12 to chapter 16, the Apostle Paul then applies that doctrine to the life of the church. This is always Paul's method. It's always the, the method of all the epistles. You'll always find that before they ever start talking about how you should live, they always deal with some kind of a doctrine. But because of this doctrinal faith, this doctrinal belief, then you begin to live out that doctrine in your daily life. It's the perennial method that you'll find throughout the presentation of the, uh, of the, the writing of the Bible. And you'll find that that is Paul's method when he's teaching theology. He never talks about doctrine alone. He never gives you facts and information and knowledge without bringing that information and knowledge to say to you, okay, I've told you this, now this is how you need to live, see. Because believe you me, a lot of people know theology. A lot of people have now a lot of people have facts. But when you look at their lives... It's as though the facts don't exist. It only exists in their brain. See, And Paul was leery of that. He always wanted that you must take what you know and work it out in your life. And Paul didn't leave you to find out how to work it out. He specifies in, in, in the practical section. Now this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to deal with those situations. That's the masterful hand of the Apostle Paul. The real problem, therefore, when we begin to deal with this epistle is not to deal with the major divisions. We can see the major divisions very clearly. Chapter 1 to 11, doctrine. Chapter 12 to 13, dealing with practice. The problem comes in when we start to subdivide the first section. Chapters 1 to 11. That is where the problem comes in, in the process. And I'll tell you where our problem lies in this regard. Most of us follow Dr. Schofield 
in our Schofield Bible. I don't know if you got one. But most people follow the outline that Mr. Schofield has created about this chapter. And, and quite frankly, this is how Schofield divides the, the book of Romans, the first 11 chapters. Chapters 1 to 4, he says, Paul is dealing with justification. He said, they said chapters 5 to 8, Paul is dealing with sanctification. And then in chapters 9 to 11, it said that Paul is dealing with dispensational truth. It's a parenthesis where Paul begins to focus on Israel and his program for God. See? And, and most people buy that. Here's the problem. It is true that chapters 1 to 4, the, the theme is justification by faith. No question about that. The real problem is, what is chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 about? Scofield said it's about sanctification. But I will challenge you to go through chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 and find the word sanctification there. It is not there. See? That's not what that theme is about. And uh, we'll talk about what the Apostle Paul is teaching in those chapters. And we'll come to that to give you an understanding of those chapters. And I think this is where we differ uh, to some extent within Baptist circles as to what those are about. But I want to explain to you why that chapter is not, those chapters are not dealing with sanctification. I would tell you, if we were dealing with sanctification, you must find sanctification somewhere. But you go through word for word, line for line, and take a microscope. And you will never find that word sanctification. It's not there. So what's the theme that Paul is dealing with in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8? We'll talk about that. And then I think you'll begin to see the, the, the wonder and the glory and the marvel of this great epistle that Paul writes. Uh, because of what Paul's emphasis is there. Now, let me suggest to you uh, this evening a more accurate outline of this great book of the epistle. Let me suggest to you this is what Paul writes about. First of all, in chapters 1, verses 1 to 15, you have two things. You have Paul giving preliminary salutation. And then you also find that Paul gives a general introduction to his theme. Now, the theme that Paul is going to write about, he even tells us in verse 1. He said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be apostles, separated unto what? The gospel of God. That's the theme. You will find that the Apostle Paul is going to expand that theme, elaborate that theme, emphasize that theme, and look at that theme from different angles. But the Apostle Paul is dealing with the gospel of Christ. And he tells us in the very first verse, this is what I'm going to be dealing with, the gospel of Christ. And the, the, the theme and the subject, therefore, is what the Apostle Paul is going to write about has to do with the gospel. And then the question is asked, what then is this gospel? It is then that we find in, in verses 16 that Paul tells us, until the end of uh, chapter 4, what this gospel is all about. And Paul elaborates on the great theme of the gospel in terms of justification by faith alone. And the gist of the essence of what Paul says in Romans to the Romans Christians is this. The good news from God is that God himself has introduced a way of saving men by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the theme. That's, that's the good news. That's the glad tidings. That God has made a way to save people by faith in Christ alone. And that's why Paul says, by the way, and because he got a grasp of this great theme, that Paul says in verse 16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. And when Paul said, I'm not ashamed, by the way, 
Uh, I am told that that expression is a particular form, a uh, literary form in the Greek language. What Paul is saying is, I am proud of the gospel. See, that's what he's really saying. When he says, I'm not ashamed, what he really means, I am proud of this gospel. I am overwhelmed by this gospel. See. It's because this gospel has power. So Paul is saying that God is doing something. And what God is doing, God is doing it through Christ. And he goes on in verse 17 to tell us that what God is doing is that God is giving to man Christ righteousness. So that when we begin to talk about salvation, we now see salvation as a gift and not a product of human works. That's the theme that Paul is dealing with. It's the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the way that God has created to make man righteous. And he has done that to Jesus Christ, imparting Christ's righteousness to us. And so now that a man is saved, not by his own works, not by his own efforts, not by his own deeds, not by his own righteousness. And by the way, no one has ever been saved that way. It's just that people deluded themselves in the process. I'll bring a quotation sometime during the, the, the preaching on this series. I don't know if you know this, that the, and I don't like to pick out any one church, but I think it needs to be said sometimes. And the Catholic Church says, if any man says that a man is saved by faith alone, let him be anathema. <laughs> let him be a curse. <laughs> but yet the Bible makes it very clear, that's the only way to be saved. Through faith and faith alone. But here is the church itself saying, if any man said a man is saved by faith and faith alone, let him be a curse. Do you understand why there's such a, a pole of difference between the Baptist ministry and the Catholic church and why the twain cannot meet? Because we take the Bible very seriously. And you cannot dilly-dally with a doctrine but just, because if this doctrine is not known well, if this doctrine is not preached, if this doctrine is not central to the church, see, and if we lose this, believe me, we lose everything else. This is the very foundation and which a man comes into the kingdom of God. And how can we dare entertain any doctrine that is contrary to what Paul is teaching here? God is doing something. That's the gospel. But what God is doing, he is doing it in Christ. And what he's doing in Christ is that he's, he's making Christ's righteousness available to a person who believes in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the essence of the gospel. See? So that is what Paul is doing in this chapter. That's his message. And he's so thrilled about it. He says he's not ashamed. By the way, if you go through the book of Romans, you'll find that there are six key words that you find again and again that Paul hits on. God, righteousness, Christ, faith, belief. You'll find that those words, he pounds them again, he pounds them again, again. Because that is his general theme. See? That's the great theme that Paul deals with in this chapter. So, that's his theme. The next thing that Paul does is that he works out in great detail what and why this gospel is needed. And he gives an explanation and does an expansion. And he argues that everybody needs this gospel. And so in chapter 1 verse 18 to the end of the first chapter, the apostle Paul shows that the Gentiles need this gospel. And he shows them that the Gentiles are desperate in need of this gospel. And he brings 19 indictments against the Gentiles. He mentions 19 of the worst forms of moral sins that you could ever conceive. By the time he ends chapter number 1, the Apostle Paul is saying to the Gentiles, Hey, you need this gospel. See, 
So he is bringing the Gentile under the condemnation of God. And under the wrath of God. And he's saying to them, if you're going to escape, you have to find it in Christ and Christ alone and the glad tidings. You must be justified by faith and faith alone. He does that in chapter 1, verse 18 to the end. In other words, the Apostle Paul points out very clearly that the Gentiles need this gospel. Then in chapter 2, the whole of chapter 2, you know what he does? He shows the Jews that they need this gospel equally. Now in spite of the fact that, that they had the law and they had all the privileges uh, of God's chosen people, the Apostle Paul said they were never able to keep the law. See, They were hypocrites. They would say one thing and do something else. So not only do the Gentiles need this gospel, the Apostle Paul points out in chapter 2, the whole of chapter 2, he goes into minute detail to show them the Jews likewise need this gospel. Because while the Gentiles did not have the law, and he brings these 19 indictments against the Gentiles, the Jews had the law, but they never kept the law. They are lawbreakers. And under the condemnation of God and the judgment of God. And if they were going to escape that judgment, they needed, like the Gentiles, to embrace this gospel, this glad tidings. They need to have this righteousness imparted by Christ and by God from Christ through faith and faith alone. And then in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul did something, does something very interesting. You know what he does? In verses 1 to 20... The Apostle Paul takes up an objection of the Jews. And he has just told the Jews to need the gospel and the Gentiles have the gospel. So in his mind, he is seeing Jews reading this epistle and hearing this epistle read in the church. And he imagines in his mind the Jews saying something like this. Well, if what you say is true, what is the importance of being a Jew? So it means that there was no significance to being a Jew. The Jewish people were not special. They were not in a unique position. What was the point of having the law if we are in the same boat as the Gentiles? That's the objection that is being raised. And the Apostle Paul goes on in that same epistle, in that same chapter, and he emphasizes two things. He shows the importance of the Jew. That they were given the law of God, the decrees of God. They had the prophets. They had everything. God. They were special people of God. He shows that, and also he showed them the 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 function of the law, see, as far as the Jew was concerned. But in the whole process, he shows clearly that the Jews still need Christ, like the Gentiles. They did have a special place in the economy of God, but they never fulfilled that purpose, and therefore they forfeited that position and. All men, Jew and Gentile alike, are under the wrath of God and therefore all need the same gospel. That's what Paul is saying to them. See? So he's not saying it didn't matter that the man was a Jew. As a matter of fact, he, in, in a real sense he's saying, you Jews had privilege after privilege after privilege. You are God's special people. You were given the law. But you took this privilege and you abuse it. With every privilege comes responsibility. But you failed in that regard. Therefore, like the Gentiles who had no law. They're condemned, but you are also condemned because you had greater light than them, but you never lived with the light that God gave you. So Paul is saying here, all men need this gospel. The Jews need it, 
The Gentiles need it in the process. And then in chapter 3, verse 21 to 23, as he's coming to the close of chapter 3, he makes the, the mighty statement about this whole doctrine of justification by faith and faith alone. And he shows how that the way that God has done it is in keeping with God's character. In other words, do you know that God just not could not carte blanche just say, I forgive you? Are you aware of that? Whatever God did, God had to be the just and the justifier of the ungodly. But in justifying the ungodly, God had to do it through the process of justice. And that is Paul's argument. See? Paul is pointing out that the only way a man can be justified is the, the way through Christ. It was the only just way God could justify man. In other words, God was just in venting his wrath on his son. And, and the son taking the sin of the world. When the son did that, his wrath was poured out on the son. There could have been no forgiveness. Had not God's wrath been poured out on the son. God had to act justly in harmony with his character. He's a God of love, but he's a God of justice. He loved us. And he saved us. But he could not save us without meeting his justice. And his justice had to be meted out on his son. That's the glory of the gospel. The just God is able to justify a sinner because God acted justly in connection with his character. He did not violate his character to justify you. So I want to say to you, the gospel has solved the human predicament. And that's one of the great marvels of biblical truth. You compare the biblical doctrine of salvation and understand what the Bible teaches and you begin to see understand the character of God, the wisdom of God, the intelligence of God. Marvelous, the Apostle Paul does that. So what Paul does in chapter 3, when he pronounced this justification by faith, he shows you that in, in justifying men, God still acted justly. According to his righteous and his holy character in the process. And I would suggest you that that verse constitutes one of the greatest and noblest statements in the whole realm of scripture, when he said that God acted justly in justifying the ungodly. It's a marvelous statement. In that, And then we come to chapter 4. And here now in chapter 4, this is what Paul does. The Apostle Paul is going to prove that what he is teaching about justification by faith is not contrary to Old Testament teaching. So what Paul does in chapter number 4, and he does it in a very marvelous way, he shows to the believers that God has always dealt with man on the basis of faith and faith alone. So what does he do? He reaches into the files of the Old Testament and he takes out a man called Abraham. And he asks the question, when was Abraham justified before God? When was Abraham declared righteous before God? Chapter 4. You know what Paul says? 430 years before the law came, Abraham was justified. And Abraham believed God and what? It was counted to him for righteousness. So Paul is saying, what I'm teaching you is not something new. Read your Old Testament. And you'll see that this principle of justifying and making a person righteous on the basis of faith was actually demonstrated in the life of Abraham. So in chapter 4, what the Apostle Paul is actually doing is that he is vindicating this doctrine, this teaching of justification by faith. And he takes exhibit number 1. He says, here's Abraham. This is a man that was 
justified when he believed. But when did he believe? Did he believe when he had the law before the law? 430 years before the law, he was justified by faith. So it's nothing new. Don't be alarmed because though I'm teaching you some new doctrine, Paul is saying. You know, don't, don't panic. This is something that is consistent how God has dealt with man. And then the other thing that Paul does in chapter number 4 is that he brings a number of quotations from the book of Psalms. And he mentioned even David talked about the Lord being gracious and forgiving men sins. Happy is the man whose sins are pardoned by the Lord. See? God acting graciously in the process. So even in the Psalms, he shows that in the Psalms that God, David recognized that God acted graciously. It's God that pardons. It's God that forgives. And God does it gratuitously. He does it freely. He does it out of grace, out of love. There's nothing you can do or I can do to wring God's hand and say, forgive me. He does it when we act in faith and we believe and we trust his son. That's the argument that the Apostle Paul does in this. And by the way, let me suggest to you that you can never understand the story of the children of Israel from beginning to end until you understand the principle of faith in God dealing with them. That's how he dealt with them throughout their journey. It was all a matter of faith. Trusting him is what the wilderness journey is all about. Do you know that? And by the way, there's a parallel, I, I hope you know, between Israel and us. Uh, just like they were in bondage before and under bondage to, to the Egyptians, the Bible considered Egypt a world, we were in bondage to the world. And just like they had a master man called Pharaoh, we have a master that even greater than Pharaoh, it's called the devil. We were in bondage. Read Ephesians chapter 2. According to the spirit and no work of the children of disobedience. We like Israel were in bondage. See? And then what happened? God brought redemption. The lamb was slain in the Old Testament. And uh, that was what redemption was about. And we were brought out. So we, there's a parallel between what happened to Israel and what has happened to us. We were in bondage. Then we were set free by the power of God, by the way. In the redemption of the lamb. Christ is the lamb of God. But don't forget that after you redeem, that's the beginning. We now got a journey. It's called the wilderness journey, brother. That's where we are. See, And what God wants you to understand is that you're going to have to trust him by faith on this journey. So what happened the first time they get delivered? Next to the no water. What are you going to do? You just saw all these great miracles when the Lord drunk fear in the, in, in the sea and, and did all these great ten great miracles. Now you come to a little water, you're crying. You're bawling, ain't got no water. And then you want food, manna. See, You want quails, you want flesh, return to flesh. We had the leeks of the garlic down in Egypt, let's get back down there. Sugar down there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had a preacher used to say that. My wife knows what I'm talking about. Every time he's preaching, he says, sugar down there, sugar down there. Man. But you know what? Again, they want flesh. They want quails. But what, what is it all about? It's a matter of faith. Can you trust me? I've redeemed you. I've used my power to redeem you. I'm carrying you to the promised land. You're going to have trials and problems along the way. It's like a wilderness journey. But you're going to have to learn to trust me to meet your needs. That's what you're going to have to do. And then of course, even when he does give them what they want. Manna in the morning, manna in the night, manna in the evening, manna in the daytime, manna, 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 manna. Give us something to eat, Lord. <laughs> and the Bible says we're like angels' food. But you can't satisfy people. 
Because it's not what people need, it's what they want. That's their problem. See, God gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. And we are so discontent with what God has given. By the way, you know, we have something called standard of living. I don't know who created that. What, what is a what is a normal standard of living? You tell me. See, you know we eat like kings, and people in parts of Africa ain't got nothing. You ever you ever sat down and wonder how many people die every day of starvation? Your mommy cook, give you porridge. I want a porridge. I want. You know, down the drain. See, have you ever thought that people that would just wish they could go down the drain and get it? We have not learned to be content. We've not learned to trust God in the process and in this wilderness journey. Uh, is where a lot of discontent, but, and by the way, that's where you're really proved whether you have faith or not. See? That's where God tested to see who had faith or not. And that's where you and I are being tested as we go through this journey. Do we have faith to trust Him or not? That's the journey that Paul is talking about. So in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul proves that the principle he's teaching about justification by faith is no new principle. And he's telling these old, these people who are objecting to what he's saying, look, go back to your Old Testament, look at the life of Abraham, that, that man that everybody looks up to, realize that he was justified by faith before the law even came. And then go, go into your Psalms, your sweet songbook, and, and see the Psalm is talking about God's pardoning mercy, his favor, his blessing, all of him, none of you. You can't wring God's hand, it's all of grace, all of love. That's what Paul is teaching. Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us that the theme for chapters 5 through 8 is not sanctification, as many Bible scholars claim, but is instead about the security of the believer. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268 462 4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.